Hi, this is David Flowers, Senior Pastor at Grantham Church, an intergenerational convergent third-way congregation with the Brethren in Christ U.S., and located in Mechanicsburg, Pennsylvania. I want to thank you for listening to our podcast and for following the sermons that I and many others preach at Grantham. This is a free podcast, and it'll always be that way, but if you'd like to give and help further the work we're doing for the kingdom, we'd greatly appreciate it. If you want to do that, you can do that by going to granthamchurch.org and clicking on the Giving tab. Whether you're a member of our church or you're listening as a parishioner, it's our greatest desire that you would encounter Jesus and be changed by the good news wherever you are. Anyway, God bless you, and I hope you enjoy the podcast. I'd like to take a moment now to properly introduce you to our presenters for this morning. Greg and Susan Hurley are professors at Messiah University. Greg is associate professor of dance, and Susan is adjunct professor of voice. They both have extensive performance experience, including sight and sound theaters. They're members and co-founders of Hurley in Motion, a performing arts ensemble that's been building bridges and connecting communities since 2005. Uh, They're an amazing power couple, and I've really, really enjoyed getting to know them over the last several years. Elisa Baer is author, speaker, and composer. She's written two books, including her most recent book, Grief is a Dancer, which was released earlier this year. And personally, I found her book to be very beautiful and just a refreshingly honest uh, account of her own journey through grief. And I found a lot of warmth and care in her writing and in our interactions as well. Thank you. Three weeks ago, my husband and I moved from Pennsylvania to Maryland. And most of you know what it's like when you're trying to move and you go through everything you've accumulated over decades of time and you have to make the difficult choice what to keep, what to donate, and what to sell. Sometimes there are surprises buried deep in boxes, things you didn't even realize you had, like this envelope that we found in one of our boxes. It says, Kelly's last tear. And it's in the handwriting of my late father-in-law, Bob Bear, a servant-hearted man who, on the day when our eight-year-old daughter lay dying on the family room sofa, found a moment to quietly slip by her side and dab a tear that rolled out of her eye. It's all so horribly broken, isn't it? This side of the veil. I watched a lament service that your pastor Dave had sent me that you had in August, and one of your leaders said, maybe it was you, we are Easter people living in a Good Friday world. And it's so true, isn't it? Last week, your choir introduced a song called, Is He Worthy? And I just wanna bring back those first phrases, if you'll just echo them back with me. And if you're, are there any choir members here? A couple, so you you know how it goes. So all you have to sing is, we do, just try it. Good. Do you feel the world is broken? Do you feel the shadows deepen? 
But do you know that all the dark won't stop the light from getting through? Do you wish that you could see it all made new? Ah, oh, so beautiful. Why is it that church isn't always the easiest place to be when we're grieving? It's an odd thing, isn't it? I mean, scripture tells us that Jesus wept, Job wept, David wept, Jeremiah wept, but in church, where these tear-soaked scriptures are provided to shape our souls and form our behavior, what do we do? We push Kleenex into the hands of people who cry, rather than dab, save, and treasure their tears for all of posterity. We quote scriptures to each other, which is good, and murmur reassurances that it's gonna be all right, but maybe we do that too fast sometimes. By our behavior, we unintentionally tell each other that sorrow is something to clean up and get over. Why are Christians of all people so uneasy in the presence of sorrow, so unpracticed in the language of lament? Singer-songwriter Michael Card wrote in his book, A Sacred Sorrow, reaching out to God in the lost language of lament. We were created to live with God in a garden, and yet we awake every morning in the desert of a fallen world, bound by the personal sorrows and hurts we leave outside the door on a thousand Sundays. We are left to languish while those around us drink from a fountain that to our eyes looks dry. Our best hope of finding our way back to true worship lies along the pathway of lament. It provides the only trustworthy bridge to God across the deep, seismic quaking of our lives. In the years following the publication of Grief is a Dancer, well, actually my first book called A Table for Two, about my daughter's journey of faith through cancer and up until her death, I met lots of grieving parents whose first question to me was always, will it ever get better? The question how long is grief going to last is based on the presumption that there's a conclusion to it, right? I would usually answer it takes time. I could never bear to tell them how much time. Four years ago, I was asked the question again. This time, now 24 years into my grief, I had to ask myself, has it gotten better? And if so, how? My answer came two years later in the form of a second book, as you heard, called Grief is a Dancer, the title of which began to form in me after I saw the dance you're about to see. How very hard it is when people go doesn't seem fair that a strong, living, vibrant human being full of giftedness and vitality has to go and their clothing gets to remain. That dance was wrenching for me the first time I saw it and every time after that. Maybe it was for you too. Maybe you even came today or tuned in online to try to feel better about your life. And now here you are, all stirred up again. 
But what if these hard emotions are God's gift to you? What if God is inviting you to lean into your pain rather than you stiffening and resisting it? The soundtrack you just heard ends with a peculiar statement. Right at the end, if you caught it, the songwriter says, I think that was wonderful. What's wonderful? Losing everyone and everything that we're attached to in this life does not feel wonderful. Losses are devastating. Just before Christmas nine years ago, there was a new game show on TV with Howie Mandel called Take It All. It was based on that white elephant game many of us have played. Did you ever play it? Yeah? I hate it. (laughs) Where when it's your turn, you either pick a gift from the pile of wrapped gifts or you steal someone else's gift if you happen to like it better. Only this version was the white elephant game on steroids. The prizes were quirky and lavish. There were expensive sets of jewelry, a year's supply of hot dogs, cruises for 20 people, jetpacks, mechanical bulls, hovercraft, and luxury cars. There were seven straight episodes, and on night five, a young woman in a pink sweater made it to the final round. Having amassed nearly $250,000 in cash and prizes. Also making it to the final round was a guy about her same age who had won nearly the same amount. All that remained for them to do to keep their winnings was for each of them to write down on a little board, keep mine. But of course, this is Hollywood, and it's not entertaining unless they raise the stakes. So the rules were that you could also write down, take it all. If both contestants said, take it all, it would be a draw and no one would get anything. But if just one said, take it all, and the other said, keep mine, The one who said take it all would get everything, and the person who said keep mine would get nothing. Before writing down their answers, they were told to face off, to lie if need be, do whatever they could to make off with the biggest prize. The young woman in the pink sweater said that she'd lost a sister and wanted to donate part of her winnings to a foundation related to her sister's illness. Then she looked the young man straight in the eye and she said, I was raised with two sisters. I know how to share. Then it was the young man's turn to plead his case. He also told a touching story about his grandmother who was disabled and how he wanted to help her financially and that he too knew how to share. They were both convincing. When the time came for them to write down their final answer, the woman lifted her board and on it she had written, keep mine. And with that, the young man's eyes lit up and a Cheshire grin began to spread from ear to ear. On his board was, take it all. It was devastating to watch, so much so that they canceled the series. As it turned out, the young man had made up the story about his grandmother and was rewarded with $500,000. And the woman in the pink sweater, who was telling the truth, went home with nothing, not even a consolation prize. How do I know this for sure? The young woman in the pink sweater was our oldest daughter. There are plenty of biblical stories that mirror the same thing. Was King David, who had all the wives and concubines he could possibly want, any different than that young man on the TV show? 
when he took for himself the only wife of one of the soldiers in his army and then had her husband killed to cover up his infidelity. And if ever anyone lost it all, it was certainly Job. But I'd like to focus on another biblical character this morning because he teaches us a lot about losing what we have, about grieving those losses, and about transformation, and that's Joseph, the one whose story is found in Genesis. The one Andrew Lloyd Webber and Tim Rice wrote a musical about called Joseph and the Amazing Technicolor Dreamcoat. Remember he got a little cocky about being his father's favorite? Remember he had a prophetic dream that one day his father, his 10 half-brothers and one blood brother would bow down to him and he actually told them that? One day his brothers couldn't take it anymore. They looked at him wearing that beautiful prized coat given to him by their father and burned against their father for his favoritism and raged against Joseph himself, the apple of their father's eye. And in the heat of jealousy, they raised their boards in unison. Take it all. One of the brothers convinced the others that killing him was too harsh. So instead, they stripped him of his robe and threw him into a pit and later sold him to a caravan of slave traders to cover their tracks. They dipped their robe, his robe in goat's blood to make it look to their father like he had been killed by an animal. I hope you know this story. If you don't, read it. It is riveting in Genesis. And Joseph, just 17 years old, who along with his younger blood brother Benjamin was already grieving the loss of his mother, didn't even have a chance to keep mine. Not his robe, not his family, not his land, not his life as he once knew it. Many of us also have a version of this story where things and people of great worth to us and to which we are deeply attached are suddenly taken away. My latest book is a personal memoir and I go into great detail about the depth of our family's loss and I'd be deeply honored if you'd like to get a copy after the service, but this morning's message isn't about my story or even greed or retribution. It's about what we do when what we have in our hands and hearts is gone. Blessed are those who mourn, Jesus said, for they shall be comforted. The surface interpretation of that is that sorrow will be wiped away. No more tears in heaven, right? And because it was such a short distance in the mouth of Jesus between when he said mourn and when he said comforted, we imagine we should be out of pain fairly quickly. After all, a healing, loving God wouldn't want us to suffer too long, right? But if grief is the price we pay for love, and if we have loved deeply, why do we think there should be an end to it? Just ask someone who's experienced tremendous loss, and I know you're in the room, because statistics say that 50% of you are grieving something right now. But let's watch Joseph over the next 20 years with how God invites him to go deeper with his grief. Okay, he was endured, he endured being abandoned by his family, enslaved, then he rises to favor in the eyes of the Pharaoh, after which he's seduced and wrongly accused of sexual assault by one of the Pharaoh's officials' wives, then thrown into prison, gaining release by interpreting the Pharaoh's dream about the coming seven years of abundance followed by seven years of famine. For doing that, he's promoted to governor of Egypt and given a wife who bore him a son. And here's a verse that may seem fairly insignificant, but it stopped me in my tracks. Joseph named his firstborn Manasseh 
and said, it is because God has made me forget all my trouble and all my father's household. You'd think Joseph might name his son after his dad, Jacob Jr., or his beloved brother Benjamin, or something. But he names him something meaning to forget. Joseph thought he was closing the book on his grief. And isn't this what we all want? It's not healthy to keep looking back and dwelling on the pain, right? In fact, let's not be in pain at all. Let's sing upbeat songs about our faith. Remind each other of the promises of heaven when conversation gets too sad. Let's avoid tough conversations about loss. And while we're at it, binge watch a good series on Netflix with a giant bowl of popcorn or sell the house where it happened. Make a fresh start. Do whatever we can to get ahead of grief so that it can't catch us and bring us down. Sometimes pain is so raw. You have to numb yourself, for a while at least. Certainly all of us need refreshing relief and uplifting diversions from the hard things we go through. You can't stay with the intensity all the time. And sometimes it takes years before you get perspective on what and whom you've lost. You can't be sad all the time. Even for Joseph, I'm sure naming his son was a joyous diversion, a great act of faith. But grief was not finished with him. And here is where the story becomes intensely emotional and deeply moving. Joseph is now in a position of great power, and the family he hasn't seen in 20 years is desperate to eat because of the harsh famine. Ten of his brothers travel to Egypt in hopes of buying grain, and they make the 10-day trip and show up at the palace. Joseph recognizes them, but they don't recognize him. Think about it. He had now aged from a teenage boy into a 37-year-old man. They thought he was dead. Who would have guessed that this high-level governor, decked in royal attire, smooth-shaven, unlike the Israelites who wore beards, and speaking the language of the Egyptians, could be the wiry kid they threw into a pit and sold to a traveling caravan? Joseph can understand them, but he speaks through an interpreter. When he grills them about their family and plays with them a little, accusing them of being spies. He hears them frantically talk about how all this distress has come upon them because of what they did to their younger brother. They may not end with the grain after all. Something's wrong with this man here. He doesn't like us. And just like that, the painful memories awaken. The scriptures say Joseph turned away from them and began to weep. Not only is Joseph starting to realize that maybe he hadn't forgotten all his troubles in his father's household, but his brothers are starting to freshly feel the guilt about their collective wrongdoing. The brother that Joseph is most desperate to see, of course, is his younger brother Benjamin, who is not with them. Their grieving father Jacob, unable to bear the thought of losing yet another of his deceased wife's Rachel's two biological sons, had refused to let him go. But Joseph makes them go back and get him. And when Father Jacob learns about that, that Benjamin is required back at the palace, he is not happy. But they don't have a choice. The whole family will starve to death if they don't get the grain. So they load up Benjamin and bring him to stand before Joseph. And here's where grief pulls back the curtain of loss even further. Seeing his beloved little brother It all wells up in him so fast that the Bible says Joseph hurried out and looked for a place to weep. 
These weren't gentle tears of nostalgia. This was the remembrance of all he knew as home, of everything he tried to forget, but that he remembered as loving, safe, and secure. Not even the second most powerful position in the land or 20 years' time could make up for his lost family. He hurries out to wail privately, washes his face and comes back out and still doesn't tell them who he is. What follows is a lot of artful scheming and framing by Joseph. He feeds them, fills their sacks with grain and slips the silver cup into the sack of young Benjamin to frame him for stealing. On the road as they're traveling home, Benjamin is caught and they're all brought back to the palace again. And Judah steps up and pleads with Joseph to take him captive instead of Benjamin. If the boy is not with us when I go back to my father, Judah says. And if my father, whose life is so closely bound up with this boy's life, sees that the boy isn't there, he will die. Then Judah socks Joseph even harder in the gut. If you do this, your servants will bring the gray head of our father down to the grave in sorrow. The tremors of emotion that Joseph had experienced so far were low on the Richter scale compared to the magnitude he feels now. Then Joseph could no longer control himself before all his attendants and he cried out, have everyone leave my presence. So there was no one with him when Joseph made himself known to his brothers and he wept so loudly that the Egyptians heard him and Pharaoh's house heard about it. Have you ever cried that hard? My husband and I have in a hotel room across from Children's Hospital of Philadelphia. Right after the surgeon told us what could happen if he so much as nicked the brain stem in removing our six-year-old daughter's brain tumor. And we began to absorb the reality that she had cancer and may not survive it. Can you imagine being one of Joseph's brothers right then and hearing that kind of wailing? We were wailing into pillows, but he was just wailing, the kind that drives a stake through your heart and cracks open the ground you're standing on. The brothers were already shaking in their boots from the guilt of what they did to their supposedly dead brother, and now this royal governor, whose favor they are desperately trying to win, who is stunned at the possibility that his elderly father may still be alive, who is pierced to the marrow by learning how deeply his father has grieved for him over the last two decades, can no longer contain himself. He cries out, I am Joseph. Is my father still living? The scriptures say his brothers were not able to answer him because they were terrified at his presence. It is not always easy to be around grieving people, and it's not comfortable to have light focused on our wrongdoing. Much to their shock, Joseph forgives them and goes so far as to tell them God actually meant for this to happen, that it was God's doing in the first place, not theirs. Joseph's grief was now released, now dancing and flowing freely. He wraps his arms tightly around his beloved brother Benjamin and they weep. He kisses all his brothers and weeps over them as well. And when they finally bring back their father, Jacob, Joseph throws his arms around him in the most heart-wrenching reunion and weeps. Grief is lifelong, rigorous work. It certainly was for Joseph, and it certainly was for me. 
and still is. I am still putting pieces together with others of that time back then in 1992 and 93. The Holy Spirit is a dancer inviting us out into the floor to move with him, to absorb our tears, to release the pain, to be transformed. The story of Joseph is a prime example of how God is not daunted by our timetables for feeling better and how he is intent upon restoring us, not medicating us. Blessed are those who mourn, for by that heavy work of mourning, by the rigor of facing complicated layers of loss, they will be comforted. They will be transformed. They will be able to help others. We've talked a lot about first responders in the past year and a half, but you who have suffered, you are God's compassionate last responders. But even as we minister to one another, even as decades go by, the people, the situations, and situations we love and have had to say final goodbyes to continue to populate our memory in pockets, shadows, flashbacks, and floods for the rest of our lives. They are part of its essence and fabric, part of who we are. We wouldn't ever, ever want to forget them. I believe grief is the energy of love, the Holy Spirit partnering with us in our sorrow, a dancer who shows up at the most devastatingly inconvenient time. At first you think it's a terrible partner and you blame it for all the turbulence, for messing up your normal, comfortable life as you once knew it. But in time, you discover that grief is your finest friend, not causing the trauma, but actually working to stabilize you in it. This is All Saints Sunday. Think of the people across time who have supported and inspired you. Think also of those who've hurt or betrayed you, whose actions have altered the course of your existence. Lord, like Joseph, help us to grow to the place where we can say, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good. I'd like to read a poem by John O'Donohue from his book, To Bless the Space Between Us. It's titled, For a Friend on the Arrival of Illness, but I've taken the liberty for our purposes here this morning to insert the word grief instead of illness. Please don't think for a minute that I think grief is illness. It is not. In fact, it's the opposite, it's wellness. But this poem helps us acknowledge just how hard it can be living in this Good Friday world. I first heard this poem last March at the beginning of the pandemic and the words were life-giving. Greg Hurley has shown me time and time again how grief is the energy of love and wants to initiate movement, to flow, to invite us onto the dance floor of healing. I think he can help us all in the same way. Will you please stand or sit if you'd like. Um, stand if you're able, including our viewers online, and spread just a little up, up, spread just a little further apart from each other. Don't worry, we're not judging you in any way. 
Um, you can either follow the movement to the poem that Greg does, or you can move any way you feel like moving, or just stand quietly and listen, or sit quietly and listen if you like. No one, again, is watching or judging you. For a friend on the arrival of grief, now is the time of dark invitation. Beyond a frontier you did not expect. Abruptly your old life seems distant. You barely noticed how each day opened a path through fields never questioned, yet expected deep down to hold treasure. Now your time on earth becomes full of threat. Before your eyes, your future shrinks. You lived absorbed in the day-to-day, so continuous with everything around you, that you could forget you were separate. Now this dark companion has come between you. Distances have opened in your eyes. You feel that against your will, a stranger has married your heart. Nothing before has made you feel so isolated and lost. When the reverberations of shock subside in you, may grace come to restore you to balance. May it shape a new space in your heart to embrace this grief as a teacher who has come to open your life to new worlds. May you find in yourself a courageous hospitality toward what is difficult, painful, and unknown. May you learn to use grief as a lantern to illuminate the new qualities that will emerge in you. May the fragile harvesting of this slow light help to release whatever has become false in you. May you trust this light to clear a path through all the fog of old unease and anxiety until you feel arising within you a tranquility profound enough to call the storm to stillness. May you find the wisdom to listen to your grief. Ask it why it came. Why it chose your friendship. Where it wants to take you. What it wants you to know. what quality of space it wants to create in you. What you need to learn to become more fully yourself. That your presence may shine in the world. May you keep faith with your body, learning to see it as a holy sanctuary which can bring this night wound gradually toward the healing and freedom of dawn. May you be granted the courage and vision to work through passivity 
and self-pity to see the beauty you can harvest from the riches of this dark invitation. May you learn to receive it graciously and promise to learn swiftly that it may leave you newborn, willing to dedicate your time to birth. Wherever you are today, whether you're experiencing fresh loss or grief is inviting you to examine something that happened a long time ago, or maybe you need right now to rest from all the rigor, may our God who loves us to the depths, who reaches out to partner with us in our fiercest trials, our most profound loneliness and confusion, and in our, in our, and in our most broken places, be with you. Amen.